Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Um, we're in our series uh, in, the, in the book of Daniel, and so if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Daniel chapter 5 and hold your spot there. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep it raised high. One of the ushers will walk down the aisle and get you a copy of God's Word. Um, this is your first time here. I want to personally welcome you. My name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get a chance to do a bulk of the preaching and get a chance to do such this morning. But before I do, I got to just deal, gotta deal with a couple things here real quick. First, Will said something. He said, hey, we were able to serve 250 families, and you guys were like, eh. Um, usually, just so you know, that's a response like, wow, thank God, we can serve 250 families. So, yeah, you turned your homework in too late. Don't get credit for that. So they're, they're just, just, just an observation. Um, and then the other thing that Will said, I love it, he's like, oh yeah, and then one of the guys that came on the trip with this, he took a video. You thought like maybe with his phone or something like that. Clearly, that's what that guy does for a living. I mean, that's just not like some video of me taking pictures with my kids and so forth. So uh, to Jonathan, if he's here, thank you for, for, for that video. Um, okay, so this is what we've, we've, we've been doing. One, I, I was gone the last two weeks. Um, I was teaching at a church and... Um, I was teaching at a church somewhere else in the country. It was amazing. Uh, New York. I was in New York. Uh, and man, I just lost myself there a little bit. Here, I got to confess, bro. I was actually in Eugene, Oregon last night doing chapel stuff for the ASU game. It's the first time I've been in chapel all year that they lost. Uh, so not really sure how this sermon's going to go today. Uh, the, the Lord has removed his anointing. <laughs> so, um, so uh, yeah, a little, little, little tired. I haven't slept. And, so, um, and it was a rough game for, for, the, for the devils. But we get to play the Wildcats this week, and if we lose, uh, this would be my last sermon taught ever at Redemption Church, and so <laughs> let you guys know that. Um, we, we, uh, we, we've been going through this series, and the reason, or excuse me, I was, gosh, sorry, New York. Let me just tell you an experience that I had, and I normally don't talk about this when I go teach at another church. It was easily the best experience that I've ever had teaching at a church outside of our church, of course, um, and part of that was we talk about multi-ethnic like, ethnic churches. When you're in the middle of New York City and it's multi-ethnic, it truly is multi-ethnic. I mean, there are, I think they said it was something about 90 languages spoken at their churches of different people, and 50% of their church, church people, the people that go to that church, were born in different countries and it's the middle of Queens. Um, and so if you've ever seen the movie Coming to America, it was like right there where that was. <laughs> if you've never seen it, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, I... Those of you guys who know me, I'm not like a big touch person, although I'm getting really better at hugging people and stuff like that. They make you, as a pastor, even a guest pastor, stand outside and hug everybody who wants a hug, who walks out. And you got to think, these are cultures from different cultures, not just from different parts of America. Like, they don't just hug. I probably got kissed 60 times from grandmas just kissing me left and right. And I'm just sitting there going, is there any hand sanitizer or anything that's here? And uh, it was, yeah, it was an incredible experience. And it was, it was for me personally going, wow, this is, this is truly just a glimpse of the kingdom of God and, and so forth. And then at the same time, um, real thankful to be here with, with you all for, for lots and lots of reasons. It's always good to be away because you do miss what you have at home, so to say. So anyways, that's just an update on Worlds Waldo. And so now here, we've been in this series, and I want to step back real quick and, and recap on why we even chose to do this series. We chose not necessarily just to teach through the book of Daniel and its regular way we teach the book of the Bible. One is we found ourselves increasingly in a situation as, as God's people going, like, how do we live and make a way forward as God's people in the culture that we live in? 
Um, we were influenced by some different, some different writers and thinkers and so forth, particularly Michael Goheen, Mark Sayers, and some different people on thinking about how to be God's people, to be witnesses of God's kingdom and the context in which we find ourselves. And then we're looking for cues and saying, is there any narrative, are there any people in the Bible that we'd be able to, we could follow from, we can follow, we can learn from. And what we saw in Daniel, and as we've seen, is the exiles. And that is the people of God. The context is that they were in Jerusalem. They had all the symbols and the word. They had the temple, the presence of God. They had everything they need to be God's people. Yet they rebelled, they rebelled, they rebelled. And what would happen is that God would send prophet after prophet after prophet and said, if you continue to do this, there's consequences for your sin. And part of those consequences is that God would allow another country to come and remove them out of their place um, in Jerusalem and bring them to that country. And that's exactly what happened to these people. Now, we said there was three ways of exile. The first wave of exile is that um, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he sent people in and he brought the youngest, the brightest, the talented. That was Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and a host of other young people to their city. And the point was, if we can bring the young, the bright, and the talented, all we have to do is put them in our culture, and eventually our culture will allow them to assimilate in the culture. We can have their gifts and their talents, and we can get rid of their God. The second two waves were bringing other people over, and the third wave, and finally, they burned the city. And so now God's people found themselves in exile. And they begin to write particular things. And one of the things they wrote is a psalm that we read before every sermon in this series. And that is, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Meaning the territory that we are in right now is very foreign. And what we're trying to do in this series is try to let us know the territory that we're in is foreign. The, the landscape of what it means for us to follow Jesus and our day is not the same, and it's shifting rather fast. And so what we talked about is there's three different cultures that missiologists, those are people who study the way God's people do mission. The three different cultures, and to boil it down, it was this. The first culture is what we would call a pre-Christian culture, a culture that does not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, a culture that has not even heard about Jesus Christ. And what happens is you have missionaries who then go to those places. They have multiple gods that are there, and it's usually taboo and so forth. But now the gospel gets brought there, and then men and women and children begin to believe upon the death and the resurrection, the new life that is given through Christ. And so what happens, it forms eventually the second culture, which is a Christian culture. Now hear me on this. When I say a Christian culture, I'm not saying that, that everybody in that culture is a follower of Jesus Christ. Not at all. However... There are certain values and sayings and things and artifacts and so forth in that culture that begin to reflect Christianity. And so you have that. And then what happened is these missionaries would go and live years and years and years in other contexts of what was known as um, pre-Christian cultures, and then they would come back. One in particular, Leslie Newbegin, um, came back to the West, mainly Europe and America, and realized, wait a minute, while we're sending missionaries to all of these other places, like, who's actually bringing the mission of God here? Because it seems to be there's been a shift here and that there's a pushing away of God in our culture, even amongst the church. And so he would use language like we need to remission or re-narrate the gospel in such a way that these people would believe. Now, what would happen is, is, is you had two different movements. One of the movements, at least in our country, was a movement of relevance. And then whether it was a mega church or a small church, didn't matter. And that means Christians begin to try to be relevant in order to reach people. I mean, there's magazines, I think, called Relevant Magazine. Um, and part of that is not to like make fun or get rid of any of these things. It's just going, 
It was, if we can have a really cool Christian skateboarder, or we can have a really cool Christian doctor, or a really cool Christian actor, or if we can get the football player who's really good and get him on stage and have him share his testimony, people would see Christianity is relevant. However, we follow a Jesus, a savior, that wasn't very relevant. I mean, like Jesus and itself, like are there parts of the gospel that sometimes people say, oh, that's very relevant to my life? Yes, but when Jesus was in this world, it wasn't like people were like, oh, Jesus, Jesus, right? They were like, no, they killed him. And we are people who follow him. So, but there's the relevance movement. And then from there, people my age, um, which I'm not going to tell you because I'm getting younger as the day goes older, but my, my age began to go probably about 10 years ago, um, there was a big missional movement. And you heard the word missional a lot. People were using missional a lot. And you would say, what does missional mean? I don't know, but it sounds missional, right? And so with that was going, we're not going to just do church in the regular way that we've done church before. Maybe our parents' generation, it was all about being casual and so forth and come as you are. We're going to actually bring the gospel to where people are at. So we're going to have Bible studies and bars, and we're going to be in the neighborhood, and we're going to join sports organizations, and we're going to be a light. And we're not going to use Christianese and this jargon of Christian language. We're going to preach the gospel in ways and language that people can understand and symbols and stories they can understand. And what Mark Sayer says is, we didn't want to do what the foreign missionaries did. We didn't want to go into people's context and colonize them. We just wanted to bring the gospel. But what we did is, trying not to colonize people, that we ourselves became colonized. That we found ourselves having more unbelief and doubts than we've had before. Because we did not at all take in consideration how powerful the idolatry was in our culture and the spaces in which we found ourselves trying to hold out the hope of the gospel begin to shape us more or as much as the very scriptures in which we say we believe. And, and it's been my experience as a pastor to this church. Like, I'm not saying like the other churches, because sometimes we can take the stance probably in pride of like, well, I mean, we still believe the Bible. We still believe the Bible is the highest degree of authority that we have. And really, when you sit down with people, you go, do you believe the Bible? Yeah. And you go, here's the Bible says to do. Well, I don't believe that part. Well, I don't believe that part either. So essentially what we have is a smorgasbord of things in which we want to take and eat from the Lord and the things that don't sit well with us, we say, no, thank you. And the last part is we're not in the second culture or the first culture anymore. We're in the third culture. And the third culture, what we said in week one, is a culture that is not pre-Christian. And it's definitely not Christian. It's what some people would say post-Christian. Now hear me, in the same way that I said when the second culture was Christian, not everybody was Christian, when I say the third culture is post-Christian, it's not that there's no Christians around, right? Right? Because right, I'm sure I know at least most of you guys are, <laughs> just want to make sure. So there's, there, it's post-Christian or anti-Christian. And this culture, what we said is this, this culture is unique than the first two because it's heard the gospel. It's, a, it's consumed the gospel. It has taken it and then regurgitated it. And the illustration that we use was every single one of us have had that one particular food that we've eaten before that did not sit well with us. And, and the very thought of eating that again makes us sick. And no matter how good our friends go, oh no, you never have tried my mom's, man. My mom's stovetop stuffing is better than that, right? And it's like, no, no, no. The very thought of eating whatever that thing is makes me want to regurgitate it. And that's the culture in which we live in as we try to follow Jesus and try to witness to Christ. It's a culture that's sin. Even as you begin to talk about this, Jesus, I want no part of it. No part of it. And so that's, that's where we find ourselves. And we find ourselves saying, Lord, how do, we, how do we have a way forward? 
Because what, what this culture has for us now, in weird ways, there's a lot of things in our culture that actually begin to look like and hints like things of the kingdom in which we believe Jesus has brought and is bringing in. The thing about it is, um, there's beauty that we see, and they, people desire beauty, they desire um, race and reconciliation, they desire gender equality, they desire justice, they desire all of these things, but without the lordship of Jesus. And as one writer says it, they want the kingdom, but without the king. And it's been my experience, in my own soul, and as pastoring people, we are not far behind them. We are not far behind them. The amount of men and women in our congregation, I'm not pastoring um, any other church other than this church. When I go preach in other churches, the best part about it is I get to just leave. I don't to, they got problems. Ah, I don't know, talk to your pastor. <laughs> right? This is our church and our souls and our lives and our families and our kids and our singles and I, as a community, and it's going, wait a minute, maybe we've actually tried to be relevant and maybe for years we've been, quote unquote, the cool church, and maybe we haven't actually been reaching uh, uh, the culture as much as we think. That's not to say that God hasn't been faithful. God's been incredibly faithful. But I think we need to transition from, from maybe relevance to definitely deep-seated, being rooted in the old traditional ways of Christ and just being faithful to the things of Jesus, come what may. Amen? So, so, so we're, we're, we're looking to the Bible to get those things. And today, um, we've tackled individualism, we've tackled nationalism, we've tackled consumerism, and today we have a little bit of, of hedonism. And, and just to boil down what hedonism is, it's the pursuit of pleasure without God. It's the pursuit of pleasure without God. Or, another way to look at it is, it's trying to have the highest degree of pleasure by maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain without the very power and presence of God. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Before we do, um, let's, let's, uh, let's pray. Um, before I pray, I'm going to let me know context of how we're going to do We're going to walk through Daniel chapter 5, walk through the whole uh, chapter, and then um, give us the so what. So just so you know, warning, every, every uh, sermon so far has been a lot about God's promises and Christ and so forth. Today is far more a sermon on warning and judgment. And so if you're not a Christian today and you, um, your friend invited you and you're like, oh, my pastor doesn't talk about judgment a lot, uh, he lied, or she lied, um, or at least today we're going to talk about that, and I think it's a good thing for your friend, who's actually the Christian, and for you, who's not the Christian, because we do believe in a God of love and mercy and everything, but this same God, he also judges, and um, at, at, at some point, his, his uh, grace and his mercy never runs dry, but if we never turn to him, then we never get in on it. Uh, so, yeah, welcome to Redemption Church. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the light of Christ. And I just pray, Lord, right now as we walk through this text, God, that you would show us, um, even on our own hearts, corporately, as a body, individually, God, where, where all this needs to stop, Lord, where we are pursuing pleasure without you. God, in our own lives, Father, where we find ourselves checking out because reality seems to be so difficult. But Father, we confess even now, even coming to the text, Lord, that it is a thought sometimes that when we read a text like this, it's for somebody we know, <laughs> as opposed to us. And so Lord, we pray for your spirit to pour out upon us and bring a sense of conviction that we may rely and trust on the grace and on the love, on the mercy that we have in Jesus. God, I pray that you would do in us through your word today more than we can think more than we can ask, 
and more than we can imagine, according to the grace that you give us in Christ Jesus. We praise you, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I, it, it's hard for me to ever teach this text without thinking about it, and I've shared this story before. Um, this, the, the first time I ever heard this sermon taught is the most memorable sermon I've ever had in my life. Um, and, and if you've heard it before, I don't apologize because it's a good story. And so I am a junior, or I'm a senior in college, and I got a buddy of mine who's getting married. Um, he's getting married, he's uh, back in California, and he's gonna have a bachelor party. And so I'm gonna go back home for this bachelor party. This is, this is before Jesus Christ, I did not know who Jesus Christ was. I mean, I knew he was, but I was not following Jesus, disclaimer, okay? And so going back for this bachelor party, and my mom is back in town, because my mom, once I graduated, my mom moved back to Mississippi, where, where she was from, to be real country. And so she was in California, and she goes, hey, my pastor is in town. And you know, my mom's, it's not her pastor, my pastor. My pastor is in town, and he's preaching at this church on a Friday night. And I'm like, who preaches on a Friday night? And he's like, it, you know, there's a, there's a revival going on. And in the African-American church, sometimes we have revivals, we plan them. And then... Uh, <laughs> And, um, and multiple churches get together, and it's like a, like a whole weekend of just like listening to preaching and worshiping and so forth. So anyways, my mom says, hey, uh, won't you come to church with me before you go to your boy's uh, party? And I said, yeah, you know, I, I've never said no to my mom. And so I'm like, yeah, I'll go to church with you. I convinced my friend David to come with me. And I said, hey, let's go to this church. And he's like, church? And I said, come on, man, let's go to church, man. And, uh, and he's like, all right, I'll go to church with you. I said, we'll go to church, and afterwards we'll go to the party which doesn't make any sense at all, right? <laughs> but that's just where I was. Uh, and you know what? Let's just be honest. Some of you guys are there too. So I've been praying for the Spirit to bring that same conviction. So we get there, and, and it's, it's like a stereotypical, like, uh, black church. I mean, everybody's dressed up. It's Friday night. Uh, there's like, it's a small room, way smaller than this. There's probably this many people in the room but it's way smarter, smart, uh, smaller than this, and it's pews, and there's fans going everywhere, and music goes on for like an hour and a half. You guys think, oh, he's exaggerating. I might actually be like, it might have gone on longer than that, right? And so there's music, 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 and finally the pastor gets up, and my mom goes, oh, that's my pastor, that's my pastor, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, and he gets up, and he goes, and he starts talking, and he goes, today's word comes out of Daniel chapter five, right? And then he said this, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, take a sermon title, he said, the title of today's sermon is, The Party is Over. So that's the title of for. Yep. The party is over. And the parties is over too. Uh, the party is over, all right? And so here's what he says, all right? And we're going to go through this. If you never heard this text, you're going to hear it right now. But he goes through it all, and there's this huge party that's happening. And he says this, no matter what, even if God is not invited to the party, guess who will show up? God will show up to your party. God will show up. And he kept going on and on and on. And he gave this illustration. He goes, you know what? You know, you can steal some things from people. He goes, I, I had a guy in my church come to me. He's had a guy in my church come to me. He said, Pastor, before I came to know Jesus, I was your neighbor. He said, I remember you lived across the street from me. He goes, one day you was at church, and I knew you was at church, and I know you go to church for a long time. I went in your house, and I stole your VCR. And the pastor was like, I remember my VCR being stolen. He goes, and man, when I, when I checked it out at your house, it worked. But when I brought it back to my house, it would not work. And the pastor was like, you can steal from God. You can take his stuff. But when you take it, if he's not a part of it, it won't work. So turn to your neighbor and say, the party is over. And he said, oh, there's somebody here tonight. You're waiting on me to get done because you're trying to go to a party. And that's when I was like, oh, shoot. 
Like, ever since, ever, I mean, up until then, I'm like, ah, come on, the VCR, who, come on, what year is it? You got a VCR, you mad about that? And so he said, there's somebody in here right now, you were waiting to go to a party. And I looked at my buddy David, and he looked at me like, did you tell this dude? And, it, and he just kept going on, don't go, don't go. Soon as the service is over, I was like, all right, Ma, we about to bounce. And my buddy David was like, you ready? I'm like, hey, man, just drop me off at my mom's house, or my brother's house. And he's like, you're going to just not go to Manny's party? I'm like, I'm not going to that party. Did you not hear what the pastor just said? Like, are you not afraid? I literally, and I, that didn't drive me to Jesus, but it was enough to go, hey, you know what? My, my life is not right. Uh, my life is not right. It was actually six months after that that I came to know Jesus. And I wrote that pastor a letter or email, and, and, you know, entitled, I put, the party is over, and said, hey, God used this to scare me. He didn't use it to save me, but it did scare me. And then later, God saved me. So the party is over. Let's walk through this text. Chapter 5, Daniel 1. Dan- Chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for the thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Okay, so you got to understand this context. Um, first, we got to go back. You say Belshazzar. If you've been following along, you like, I thought it was Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, the book of Daniel is not written in chronological order. <gasps> it's not written in chronological order. Because the point of Daniel is not to say, historically, here's what's happening. The point of Daniel was saying, this is what God did to cure idolatry while we were in exile. So what you have is Nebuchadnezzar, who we knew, um, who Jim talked about last week and I talked about, and Josh talked about the week before, then I talked about the week before that, this Nebuchadnezzar, he's gone now. And it says that Belshazzar is his son, or Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar's father. You say, well, is that his father? No. In Aramaic, which is what the book of Daniel, for the most part, is written in, there's no word for grandfather or great-grandfather. So oftentimes, even in the Old Testament, when you hear father, it's not always father, how Keith Stewart is my father. It could be Donald Stewart, my my grandfather. Um, and so what he's saying is, Belshazzar is actually not Nebuchadnezzar's son. He's an ancestor or a descendant of him. And so Belshazzar is now the guy running things. And so he throws a party. And in this party, don't think like, oh, it's a little social. Some people got together after work. Like your friend's friends got together with your work friends and a corona got its line. Like not that type of party, right? This is like to the window, to the wall, right? I'm not even going to say the rest of those lyrics. I just want to give you the context of what's happening here. This is a wild party. Verse 2, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. One of the things for me when I left home, when I left home 18 years ago or so to come to college, one of the things I looked forward to was getting away from my parents. Right? And part of it was, I thought, if I can just get rid of my parents, now I can have the most freedom to do whatever I wanted to do. Like, if, I, if, I, if like they couldn't be there, there was no such thing as a curfew anymore. There was no such thing as, tell me where you're going, tell me when you're going to be home. Um, there was no such thing as, who, was you, who did you hang out with? I didn't have to lie anymore. It was like, I can get out from, out from underneath your care. And so there's you guys who are parents going, my kids won't do that. 
And so when that, when that happened, just realize you did it too. So, and part of it was going, my parents represented with their rules and my commitment to their rules and my lining under their, 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 their house and submitting to them, that if I could just get rid of that, I can have the most pleasure and the most fun that I can possibly have. And here's the thing. That's not necessarily untrue. Right? My old pastor used to say, sin is fun unless you're doing it wrong. People were like, can we laugh at that? Because <laughs> No. So they're, 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 it's fun unless you're doing it wrong. So in some ways, as you pursue pleasure, um, yeah, you can. And, and I think in similar ways, what we do in our culture is going, if we can just remove God or the conscience of God or the ways of God, then we can actually do us better. Or the phrase we use, we could do me or I could, you could do you. Right? That we can, we can pursue whatever we want to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain without the conscience of anything that God would say. Now, you would say that happens outside the church. It happens within the church as well. It's the way that we look at scripture oftentimes. That we would say there's certain things about scripture that I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, I'm going to follow that because I can still be a Christian, right? Like, like it's the same thing what happened when I was a youth pastor and, um, I don't know why I said this when I was a youth pastor, because it's the same thing now. But when I was a youth pastor, I would have people say, well, when it comes to dating my girlfriend or dating my boyfriend, you know the line, how far is too far? Or how far can I go? And what I always say is, you're asking the wrong question. And I feel like as Christians, not just like in relationships, sexually, I think as a whole, we're going, how far can I go? Like, like, what can I do and still be Christian? Like, what can I do, say, and think, and still follow God? Like, what can I do? That's the wrong question. Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, Belshazzar now is going, we've gotten rid of God. Like, he doesn't recall what happened to his grandfather. Like, he, he's not thinking about the things that happened in his life, how Daniel had already spoke to his grandfather and said, listen, this kingdom that you have, this kingdom's not going to last forever. There's going to be another kingdom and another kingdom and another kingdom. And then there's going to be a true kingdom that's going to last forever. And that kingdom is the one true God. He doesn't know what happened when his father or his grandfather began to act like a fool and be prideful and not acknowledge the gifts and talents and goods that God has given him, how God made him act like a donkey and run out into the wilderness. He doesn't get that. He says, forget that. How about we live in such a way that we can take all of the gifts of God without having God? That we can take all of the good things that God has given us in creation that's been perverted by sin, get rid of God, never call it sin, and just call it good living or the good life. Somehow, we believe that commitment or covenant to something or someone actually reduces our, our, our experience of pleasure and joy. Here's an here's a example of this. So when I was a co- uh, in college, I was a football player, and we used to practice at 3 o'clock. Um, and in August and September and October and parts of November, it's really hot in Arizona. <laughs> and we would get on the tram, and we would leave uh, the, the, the locker room and then take the tram across rule to, to the practice field. And it used to be the, the um, fraternity row used to be there. They got rid of that. <laughs> well, but Fraternity Row used to be there, and we'd be on this tram, hot, sweating, about to go to practice, and we'd see all these frat dudes out there in their pool, and they'd be jumping in the pool, you know, 
look like having a great time. And we would look at that and go, like, that's the best life. Like, I wish we had that. Like, they're over there swimming and drinking beer. And the thing about football players is they didn't swim or drink beer ever. And so you had, you, you, you had this sense of going, if we, but because I'm committed to this team and I'm committed to this organization, I can't have what they have. And there was always this desire every day. We'd always say, like, do you ever wish you were a quote-unquote regular student where you didn't have to do football and you can just live that life? There was this, this draw to that life. Here's the thing about that life, whatever that life, and this is not an indictment on anybody that was in a fraternity or anyone was a football player, anyone that went to ASU. This is an indictment on anybody who's breathing. And so you have this sense that somehow if I can get rid of my commitment, my covenant, primarily even to God, if there's a way some of these things can be moved away, then I can finally live because I feel like what God is calling me to is a killjoy. And Belshazzar says, here's what this life looks like. You want this life? No one does it better than me. He's got um, wine that is flowing. He's got uh, gold and silver. Now, here's what he does. He takes the gold and the silver, these vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had already stolen from Jerusalem years ago. And the way the party is, it, it, it's already saying that the party's going on. And he's like, this is a great party. This is great. He's loaded. And he's like, hey, go get the... Go get those, those really nice uh, uh, things that we stole from Jerusalem. Get those things in here, which in some ways is say this, the God in whom they come from, he doesn't matter. Bring those in here. Let's have a good time. And he said he's got his wives and his concubines, and wives were his wives, and then concubines would be like, would be like, um, like female slaves, basically. Um, like it's, it's just party after party. He's got all the lords there and not the Lord, but like some other people that are there. It's just this wild party. And then God shows up because the party can't last forever. At some point, the party's over. Watch what God does. Verse five, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave away and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king, the, the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Okay, so you get what's happening? They're over there. Dun -it, dun -it. Then all of a sudden, these hands showed up, all right? And the hands start writing on the wall. Now, you can only imagine being in a party and like, yeah, get the goblets, let's go. No, I'm tripping. And then it, does everybody else see this hand? And everybody sees the hand, and the king is like, stop the party. Stop the party. Anybody who can interpret this. So it, same thing as a couple weeks ago. He brings in all the enchanters and the wise men, the astrologers. You would think that he would bring in Daniel, but he's forgotten everything that his grandfather actually said and that would happen to him. And so he doesn't bring him in. And he's perplexed. It literally says that his knees are shaking. Like there is a fear of what is happening here. Now, you would think it's the fear of God, but it's not. It's just, he's just afraid. There's nothing here about repentance in his life, even though God shows up with these fingers and he, and he begins to write on the wall. Well, then his grandma speaks, verse 10, the queen, and this is not his wife, this is his grandma, 
Because of the words of the king and his lords came into the banquet hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color, your, your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Grandma always knows. Grandma always knows. I'm sorry, she just does. She comes in and just says, listen, I told you guys not to have this party in the first place. Look what she's wearing. I cannot believe it. Anyways, she goes, and, and you know, that's how grandma does it, right? <laughs> grandma comes in and says, you know, your grandfather, there's a man named Daniel. He's good like this. The spirit of the gods, and she's saying of the most high God, he, he knows how to interpret this. He is in him. And he would do this for your grandfather. You need to bring him in. And notice she doesn't call him Belshazzar. She calls him Daniel, which was the name of his Hebrew name. Like she recognizes his actual identity not the identity that the culture had given him. And then so he calls for Daniel, verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said, Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, and the spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in you. Now the wise men and the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a gold chain around your neck, and it shall be, you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourselves and your rewards go to another. Nevertheless, I will read to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, most high, God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory, and majesty. And because of the greatness, he gave him all the peoples and nations and language they troubled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his highly, his kingly throne, and the glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like, the, like that of the beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys, and he was fed grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew from heaven until he knew that the most high God rules kingdom of mankind and sets it over him. And here's, here is the verse. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your Lord, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, and of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not hear nor know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Daniel begins to go ahead and interpret it for him. And he begins to interpret exactly what God has for him. Verse 25 says, this is the writing that is inscribed, mine, mine, teko, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and has brought it into an end. Teko, you have been weighed and the balance is found wanting. Paris, you, your kingdom is divided and give it to the means, Medes and the Persians. And then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple, a gold chain was on his neck and proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean, was killed. 
And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Here's the thing. You can only live without God for so long. There's a moment, there's a season, we never know how long it is, where you can keep pursuing the things of this world or the pleasures of this world apart from God, that it runs out. That there, there's this hymn that we'll sing every once in a while that, you know, if you tarry um, till you get better, you won't come at all. And that sense of if you wait till you get better, you won't come to Jesus. And there's a moment where God will actually judge you. When it comes to Belshazzar and the culture or even our culture of hedonism, there's a thought that we can do this without God, that I could do me. Um, and in our particular circles, maybe what the way we, we pursue pleasure may not be the same way that, that we have here in Daniel, but it's ways in which we are trying to numb ourselves to the reality of this world. It was thought at this time that Belshazzar actually knew that the Persians and the Medes were already at the kingdom. That they, it was thought that they already knew that they were about to be attacked. And the way that they went out instead of fighting and protecting was going, basically, you only live once. So have as much fun as we can. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. And there's that sense of going, how can I continue to live my life as best as I can to have the best life for my family? And maybe maybe for you, it's not as, as wild as this, and so you can get yourself out of that going, well, I'm not a wild partier. But what is it that you go to that you know that you find a form of pleasure from that is apart from God? And hear me this. It's not that God is against pleasure. Like, God created things in order that we may have pleasure in them. Like, God created our taste buds so that we can taste delicious things. He gave us eyesight so that we can see very, very beautiful things. He gave us desires uh, for sex so that we can enjoy them. The thing about all of these things are pleasure is they've been tainted by sin and they're twisted. And when we get into these things of pleasure, apart from God's design, apart from God's the way of of the kingdom, we find ourselves running further and further away from God. And when it comes to the pursuit of pleasure apart from God, if we're honest, we don't always look that much different than the culture in which we live. That if we're honest, we would probably need God to show up in our life to bring a level of conviction that we may be able to repent. You see, what Daniel was talking about here is not that much different than what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. That we've said this before, the worst thing like when we have this phrase in our culture, hey, just do you, just do you. I'm just trying to do me. I'm just trying to do you. You do you. I'm trying to do me. It's like, all right, the worst thing that a holy God can do is allow you to do you apart from him. The worst thing that God can allow, and Paul says this in Romans chapter one, he says, here's the issue, that God has been revealed in creation, that God's given himself. There's a lot of goods that God has given, but people didn't want to worship him. They want to take the created things and elevate them to the creator that they want to take the gifts, the things that are pleasurable that God has given us that we can use in such a way under his lordship and the way that, that honors him, that rolls up to praise and worship. But when we get rid of him and we put these things on top, he says, okay, then we actually now worship the created things rather than the creator. And it says that what happens now, there's a host of living that happens from there. And he says, and therefore God gave them up to their desires. Like, so when it comes, Paul starts off by saying, the wrath of God is being revealed. And he's not saying the wrath of God is being revealed because people are getting too drunk. The wrath of God is being revealed because people are just not nice people. The wrath of God is not being revealed because people are on the wrong side of the political spectrum. 
He said the wrath of God is being revealed because people don't want to worship God. And that unbelief in itself becomes the worst form of sin because I'm choosing to say I know what's best within the created order rather than serving and following and submitting under the creator. That if somehow we can get rid of God and any conviction of God, then we can have a good life. And God says, you can have a good life according to you, but at some point it's going to come to an end. At some point, it's, it, it's going to come crashing down. At some point, whatever part of your living, it's going to be over. And so we need these moments of conviction for somehow to be able to sh- like shine a mirror right in our face so we can see who we actually are. Many of us, if we're Christian, we're good at hiding whatever those places are. We're good at finding the moments in which we can steal away to find those pleasurable things that we go to. We're good at being able to keep it a secret. We're good at being able to hide it. But God sees all. And so when it comes to this, my assumption is God's not going to show up with the hand in your life. Right? If he does, repent fast. <laughs> like, that's when you know. If you go like, yeah, the hand, I wonder if that's God. It's God. Repent. Repent. All right, so let me just tell you my story in this, okay? So I'm the good guy. I'm the good guy. On the surface, I'm the good guy. People think I'm the good guy. I know who I really am. But like I said, I, I left home. I left church. I desired, I didn't want to go to church at all. I hated church, just to be honest with you. Too long, I hated it. And so when I got to college, I'm like, I don't have to go to church. I can live how I want to live. So I go to the first thing that I want to go to. You know what, God, I need to go to some Christian thing. There was a thing called Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And it was a fellowship of Christian athletes. And so we went to this. And there, there was a guy, Tyler Johnson, who's actually now the lead pastor of our redemption, ironically. He's up there, and he's sharing about Jesus. He's a baseball player. He's a senior. I'm a freshman. And it's all these kind of people, like, talking about Jesus and stuff. And I realized, I'm, this is not what I want. So why be a hypocrite? So I walked out of there, and it was a ramp outside. And I walked out of there, and I got to the top of the ramp, and I said, you know what, Lord? I'm not going to actually confess of any sin or anything like that, because I know what I want. Sorry. The fly got in the way. I said, I know what I want, right? And so, so I, I, know, <laughs> I know what I want, and it's not God. And so for the next four and a half years of my college life, I pursued it, pursued it, yet on the surface, it still seemed like I was a good guy. I didn't seem like Belshazzar. And yet there was all of these things underneath. My coach would always say this to me. One of my coaches would go, dude, you're the type of guy that I want to marry my daughter. And I'm like, oh, no, coach if you only knew. And his daughter was like this nine-year-old little girl at the time. I'm like, no, no. But I had given up this impression. But at some point, it catches up to you. If you're lucky, God will bring conviction upon you. If you're blessed, God will bring conviction upon you. It is not, I can live my life like like an idiot. almost said something else. I caught myself. I can live my life like an idiot, and then somehow, now I just become a Christian. When I was a youth pastor, I hated sharing my story because it would be some goofy teenager who would go, oh, so what you're saying is I can live my life apart from God, have as much fun as I want, and then when I'm ready to settle down and have a family, then go to Jesus. Everyone doesn't get that chance, right? Like God is a God who brings judgment, and the judgment comes not because he doesn't love you. It's because you don't love him. It's never a picture of God saying, I'm not for you. It is us in our sin saying, I'm not for you. It is either people at the end of this life that people say, we will either say in this life, we said God's will be done, or in this life, we said my will be done. And to those who say God's will be done, we will enter into his kingdom. And to those who say my will be done, we will not enter into his kingdom. 
Like there's a moment where the judgment comes. So for me, it was um, the way I was found out. Um, I did, I'd, um, how do I say this? With I know there's, there's kids in the room. I don't know. You got to tell your kids about these things. I'm sorry. Ready? Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I, uh, I, because <laughs> I tell my kids, I don't know how you tell your kids. Um, so I had, I did not have any medicinal reasons for the, for the substances that I was using. Right? <laughs> and I knew a couple street pharmacists. And so, uh, <laughs> um, and, and that was my go-to. That was, that was, that was it. Because it calmed the craziness of my life. And I never got caught. I never got caught. We got drug tested. Never got caught. Always knew a way around it. It was the last game that I was ever supposed to play at Sun Devil Stadium. It was, you know, and then for football players, that's a big deal. And um, we were in the hotel the night before the game. We'd always stay at a um, hotel. And the coaches would come by and they'd do a bed check. Hey, are you in bed? Yeah, I'm in bed, whatever. And then they'd go to bed. And so I knew some guys on the team would always um, light it up. <laughs> and, but I wouldn't before the game. Like, I'm not going to do that. But this particular time, you know, my, my friends are like, come on, man, come over. You know, like, come on, it's a senior, man. You've been with us. I'm like, yeah, you know what? Coaches already came by. Let's do it. Went in the room. Um, and, this, and I'm like, nah, maybe I won't. And they're passing the medicine around. And, uh, and, and then I'm like, yeah, let me go ahead and, and, uh, and do this. And then the knock came on the door. And it was our coach. He's like, I can smell it in the hallway. And honestly, I was on the third floor. I thought, I'm going to jump out of this window. Like, that's how, like, I'm, like, I'm going to end it all right now. I'm like, I'm, I can land on my feet and then get back in my room and he won't even know. And it's like, dang. And so they were like, hide. Like, hide. Guys, I should have even been with you guys. I knew you guys were stupid. You can't hide. So I go open the door. And I was like, I'm guilty. And the look on my coach's face was like, man, I did not expect for you to be in here. Right? And I played that whole game with that over my conscience. With the next game, you know, you play U of A, which is this week. So I had been injured every U of A game shoulder surgery. To finding a U of A game, I get to play in it, and I was suspended the whole first half. I was the captain of the football team at the time, lost that, stripped that, stripped all of the titles, whatever. It was horrible. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because God had finally shown me this is where your end is. Sometimes you learn from your own mistakes, and sometimes you have to learn from others. God gives us this scripture to be able to, for Daniel to be able to say, look, like, here's what it is when you don't humble yourself before the Lord. Here's what the scripture says, that if you continue to live without God, God will actually give you what you want, and that is a life, an eternal life, apart from him. The good news is Daniel, and the whole book of Daniel, points to a kingdom that is going to last forever. Even when Paul talks in Romans chapter 1, he talks about this kingdom that lasts forever. Because he talks about the king who actually is able to absorb our penalty of our sin. And he says this, not only in Romans 1, but mainly in Romans chapter 2, he said that it is the patience and the kindness of our Lord that is meant to get us towards, what's the word? Repentance. If there's something that we are lacking in the church, it is a true sense of repentance. Not just confessing our sin, 
but actually turning away from the ways in which we are living our life and resting in a holy God who extends his grace and his forbearance and his kindness and his patience is meant so that he doesn't have to show up with the writing on the wall. He shows up with his son dying on the cross and being raised from the dead so that we may now be able to run to him and have a life where the party continues because ultimately in the kingdom, it never ends that we actually have a savior who is saying the good life is not in what we can do apart from God. The good life is always found in Jesus. The good life is not us going, this text is for us to confront the world and tell them how wrong they are. No, this text is to say that God's given us so many good things and we are not humbling ourselves and submitting and following him. And it's not just people, it's you, it's me to say, Lord, our lives are not as faithful. We have this dualistic life where part of us wants the foot in this world and a part of us still wants your kingdom. And Jesus is saying, I want all of you, not part, but the whole. Because he doesn't give us part of himself. He gives us his whole life, his whole death, and the resurrection that we may have new life to live in a different way amidst the context that we are. If we would repent, believe, and follow Jesus. Amen? As a Christian, we need to repent, believe, and follow Jesus. As someone who's not a Christian, you need to repent, believe, and follow Jesus. Amen? The truest joy and the truest pleasure that we can ultimately have is found in him. That God is good, and so we don't have to look elsewhere. Nothing else will satisfy. Everything else will leave us wanting and waiting, just like Belshazzar. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great grace in which you give us in your son. I ask, Lord, that you would humble us, that we would be humbled before you as a people. God, that we would lean upon you and lean upon each other to follow in your ways. God, we thank you. Um, we love you. And we ask that you would lead us, that you would guide us, God, that you would show us the way forward in and through the work of your son, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.